0: This is a special bonus edition of Judaism Unbound, Becoming Unorthodox. Welcome back everyone, I'm Dan Liebenson.
1: And I'm Lex Rothberg.
0: And we are excited to be here today with two really special guests. One of them you already know if you've been a longtime listener of Judaism Unbound and the other one you don't know, but you sort of do. Uh, for a variety of reasons. So our first guest today, who you know, is Tova Bernbaum. She is the director of Jewish content at our very close friend, the Palo Alto JCC, the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, as you've often heard me say. And we are also here with her sister, Michal Birnbaum, who you don't think you know, but you do, because she was in the series on Netflix that has been so popular over the last few weeks and months uh, called Unorthodox. And Michal plays the character who is kind of the teacher of Esti, the young woman, when she is learning how to be a wife. And you, I'm sure if you've seen the show, I don't want to spoil too much, but you were probably struck by those scenes and and found them really, really interesting. And we're excited to get into some of those uh, scenes a little more. So let me just say a little bit about Michal, because you already know Tova, um, Michal Bernbaum is a an actress and a filmmaker. She is a graduate of the Lee Strasberg Theater and Film Institute and was also trained at the Stella Adler School of Acting. She has lots of New York City film credits and lots of other credits, including. A film called Division Ave, which she has created and also stars in, uh, which has won many awards and has been playing at various film festivals. But of course, she's well known to everybody these days from the show Unorthodox, and we're really excited to be able to explore the series and also the story behind the story, in that both. Tova and Michal grew up in ultra-Orthodox families in, Isra- in the same ultra-Orthodox family in Israel, I should say. And uh, we're really excited to talk both about how uh, art might imitate life or, or perhaps the reverse. So Tova Birnbaum, Michal Birnbaum, welcome to Judaism Unbounded. So great to have both of you on.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: Michal, I thought we could start with uh, talking to you a little bit about the process of creating the, the series Unorthodox. I, I keep calling it a movie. I think it's because my wife and I binge watched it in, in one sitting. And so it felt like a <laughs> yeah. really long movie to me. But can you talk a little bit about both how the, the opportunity came up? How does one end up in a, in a series like that? And also, how did your experience making Unorthodox compare with your experience of life?
2: I think um also in other series or movies about the ultra orthodox world you often see a character that that have these aspiration that is really not allowed they want to sing they want to act um in Stissel in Stiesel, they made it like a he wants to be an i guess a, a painter yeah I think it's it's common, in, in the Orthodox world, where you you kind of you you've, you're exposed to maybe you don't have TV at home, but you're you're doing school plays, and you're exposed to the arts and different forms, and then and then every once in a while, there's someone who actually wants to pursue it in real life, not just as a a hobby and that that might be a problem. So um, not, not a great recipe necessarily. So yeah, I think in that sense, um, I definitely identify with, with the story of the main character um, wanting to act from, from a very young age. And I think uh, my sister can talk about that too, because she, she's also been an actor for, for many years in the past or also today.
3: Yeah, I think um, what is really interesting is that Michal and I are 12 years apart. And I think we grew up in a pretty similar family. But when it comes to the religious world in Israel and the opportunities that opened up for young people, I think we literally lived in two different um, universes. When I went to acting school, I was the only religious girl I was the girl with the long skirt. I was really alone in the world. That's how I felt. And it was an extremely difficult experience for me. And I think, Michal, you in a pretty young age had a lot of opportunities to taste the forbidden fruit in a more legit ways. And um, I think it's really interesting how each of us chose a similar but different path because of our pretty different backgrounds, I think
0: these conversations always bring me back to an early conversation that we had on Judaism Unbound with Shulam Dean, who is a a man who grew up ultra-Orthodox and then left it. And I asked him whether, yeah, I sort of was trying to get at how many non-believers are there in the ultra-Orthodox world and why a non-believer might leave or however I formulated the question and what he said to me was so interesting it stuck with me for many years now that it's not the non-believers who leave ultra-Orthodoxy it's the creative people because a certain kind of creativity is not welcome in a community that's fundamentally trying to stay the same now of course we all know that communities don't stay the same and they change but there's, a, there's an amount of staying the same that... That certain communities want one of the things that I took away from that conversation was the realization that that 's not only true of ultra orthodoxy that 's actually true of any community, including reform conservative right, as long as it 's trying to more or less stay the way it is, then it wants some degree of creativity, but not the kind of creativity that says, you know I want to try something completely different i don 't want to leave, I want to try something really different. I think maybe it'll be even more powerful, and they say, no, 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 there 's a limit to that so i 'm curious how that accords with the experiences that you had also 12 years apart, whether that was changed over time.
2: I think it was easier for me because there was no, there were no labels. No one knew. Yeah. People sometimes uh, actually gave me lots of compliments about my style. And like, you're the only one who's not wearing jeans. Like (laughs) you're so cool. You're just wearing dresses and skirts. Um, So I, I, I did not, have Tova's experience and I think yeah I think it was just so much easier to just um go to to theater school in in a place where no one actually knows your your background and I think um even going to to shul going to synagogue in in, in the states is a lot easier when you just uh when you go to theater school because um it's not unheard of especially in New York maybe not in other places but um you know, it's not unheard of. It's totally makes sense that you go to some kind of a artistic school and yeah, when you go to synagogue in Israel, maybe it's not that common. And when people ask you, you know, over, over lunch, right. Over kiddush, like what do you do? Where do you, where do you go to school? Um I don't know to hear, I'm, I mean, acting school. I don't <laughs> never heard that one. <laughs> so so yeah, New York City really I was really grateful to find to find my place there as an
1: actor so I'm itching to ask an unorthodox specific question I love the love the sh- the show it was yeah I, I didn't binge it in one sitting like Dan did, but I did binge it pretty quickly in like a couple of days um and I'm curious about a couple of things um I'm having this thought that like I'm often really curious about how actors conceptualize what they, what you are doing when you're acting. Because, I mean, sometimes I watch interviews with actors and for some people they're like, I really am the character and for the entire time that I am in the project, I really like take on that character even when I'm not filming. And then there's other people who are like, no, I I take that on. I'm really interested in the different sort of approaches to that. And for somebody who is playing a character as you were, that actually is from a, from an ecosystem, from a world that you so deeply inhabited earlier. Like, I'm curious what that was like for you. Like, how did, did you see yourself as sort of inhabiting the persona of this, of this teacher of, I I don't know how to like distill her role, like this teacher of.
2: I often, uh, I mean, Um, the official name is Kala teacher, but for people who never heard of Kala teacher, I often say I'm the intimacy instructor on the show. There you go. So we can call her that. <laughs>
1: yeah, so when when you were doing that, I mean, I'm curious how you conceptualized your like the relationship between you, Michal and and you the character, um the Kala teacher. And I guess related to that and this unorthodox is meant to to make a number of statements or or send some some important messages out to society and i'm curious the extent to which the act of acting or actor intertwines with the act of activism and also the extent to which it doesn't
2: acting is more of a show don't tell type of thing it's it's really you're asking great questions it's it's kind of hard to answer um i wish i i knew what i was doing i was just doing it um yeah, reading, I mean, reading this the script, reading the series for the first time, it was obvious to me that there's something kind of different with my character. The series is very um, serious. There's a lot of conflict in place, um, very dramatic, and um, I mean... My character could, they could take it to like a very dark place. Also, usually, um, college teachers, uh, intimacy instructors, Hasidic intimacy instructors are at least stereotypically are kind of older. And uh, the creators of the show, definitely, they wanted to take it somewhere else. They they thought this is going to be almost her peer, almost her friend, just a few years older, kind of sharing these secrets with her. So I realized this, this should be a little different. It can't be like this just <laughs> really serious and boring uh, lesson. And this woman is clearly very passionate about her job. And she she feels totally in place in her community. She doesn't have a sense of, uh, oh, I'm a woman. I'm oppressed. I, I can't get to do, I don't get to do things that men do not at all like i'm totally um happy where i am and um happy to be learning well the series gave the series gave like a a little taste of it but really the women who teach that are they actually get to learn a lot they learn all the halach, they learn all the, the jewish rules so they actually do get to open uh you know the books and and really study like men in a way she's a she's a female version of a rabbi and, and often in this community she's the wife of a rabbi in a way she gets to, to study torah and teach torah so for her that's the ultimate life and successful um just being really good at what she does and i think that's a mirror to esty uh, she's the exact opposite she will never be that she's
1: esty being the main character just in case yes. folks didn't watch yeah
2: um and i just love that about this series, about this approach, because really, this this uh, there are no other characters who really show that what Esty should be. <laughs> uh, everyone is kind of older than her, and they have other issues, and um, so I think this is really what my character is there to do. It wasn't hard to draw inspiration from characters in the past that I know that are exactly like that. They're they're and and that's again what I appreciate about the series is yes, women are you could say oppressed or in a, in a different level than men, but at the same time, they're very powerful. They have they have a say. I mean, you can, for instance, Essie's aunt, Malka, she has a say. I mean, she decides who she's going to marry, you know? So there there's complexity to it. There are levels. Yes, women are uh, looked at as, as maybe not the main, like the head of the family, but their input is taken seriously, especially when when it's, kind of family-related decisions.
0: The tragedy of the series, as I experienced it and as I'm reflecting on it, is that there are all these characters who are not happy in in that world or, or not fitting into that world very well, including Esty's father and and the, and her husband, Yankee, and also his this other uh, the man, Moishe, was involved. And there's a number of people who uh, it kind of feels to me like what they need is, is, for example, therapy. You know, what they need is not available within that community as opposed to, and I understand that maybe in the ultra-Orthodox world, they're not as likely to go to doctors as maybe they ought to be in terms of health actual physical health concerns but more but it's not like a, a community that doesn't go to doctors they they there there is a willingness to access medicine but there seems to be not a willingness to access other tools that our modern world has developed to help people with their lives and I, and I guess that what where I'm struggling to to think about the series and also how it relates to life is that it feels like that there's a uh, that there's a conflict between the desire of the community to keep everybody in the community versus the, uh, and I guess it's a certainly a contemporary Western belief, but I but I, I think it goes beyond that that people should live a happy life, you know, or, or a life where they where they are fulfilled, and I, I guess that that's the central you know pathos of the of the film but i'm i'm also kind of wondering in in terms of your own lives how you think about that as somebody as people for whom that 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 conflict is not just theoretical or not just about people that you may know but actually about people that you do know including yourselves how should we be thinking about you know the 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 as people as Jews who are not part of that community You know, like, how should we be thinking about it? Because part of me feels like, what do you say about a world in which there are many, many fellow Jews that are not happy and that are kind of stuck there? What is our responsibility? That's what I'm trying to sort out.
3: I actually want to start with saying that I felt that the series was pretty respectful for the community. And that one thing that we sometimes, and I sometimes forget, and I remind myself that in Certain um, observant Jewish communities, it's not about us, and we, frankly, are not that important. What important is the religious work of odak Hashem. It's all about the divine, and that is actually not a depressing thing for a lot of people. And I think Michal, a lot of even very close family members that I think are a bit uh, different maybe for us, but for them, it is about the devotion to God and that centers life, that helps make life choices. And frankly, I think a lot of them are very happy. For us, sometimes uh, from the outside view, we tend to think of a lot of the uh, that community members as being um depressed or deprived by certain things it it is true and I go back to what you started with uh, Dan to the creative people to the different people I can say for myself that from a pretty young age I felt that I do not fit I didn't have any theological issues at all it's not about God it's not about do I really live the way I should live it's about this doesn't fit I need to be somewhere else and I actually wanted to ask you, Michal, I don't think it's by chance that we both live outside of Israel right now. You're actually now in Israel because of this crazy situation. Yeah. And, um, and I'm actually curious about this whole immigration aspect that both of us chose. So we kind of immigrated twice, right? From a very observant world into a more modern um, world from israel to america and living on this fence all the time for me it makes life richer and being able to see things sometimes in a better perspective do you connect those two um migrations together Michal?
2: um yeah i mean I- it's funny because I I arrived in the States, actually not for theater. I I was, I thought I was going (laughs) to go back to Israel for that. I came to do a program of of one year of yeshiva uh, again, like egalitarian yeshiva um, in New York, which again, exists in Israel today. I don't know how much it existed in the past. It was also like my post army, trip (laughs) so instead of eight months in in India I was like okay I'm gonna be eight months on the Upper West Side and where was that um, by the way
0: that Hadar. where was that
2: of course it was Hadar yeah Yeah. Uh, (laughs) and I I owe a lot to this institute to the Shiva because it really opened a whole world and even though um I think in Israel, if you're not from Jerusalem, you, you're like, you've never really been to, the, to those circles. And I did not grow up in Jerusalem. And so, yes, and just something about American Judaism just drew me in. And, and, uh, and I just I wanted more of that I, I wanted to stay I know a lot of also Israelis in my program and in in different years at Hadar, I had a really hard time uh, going back to Israel after experiencing a whole year of of just this more open open uh, Judaism. I think it 's changing in Israel now uh very slowly, but um, yeah it things are it 's definitely easier in a way to be a Jew <laughs> in the states. Sadly, you know, you can hear Israelis often say like Israel is the only democracy where Jews don't have freedom of religion. It's ridiculous. So, yeah, you know, it's easier to be a Jew outside of, of Israel.
0: I, I just wanted to pick up on just one other element, because I, I'm not asserting a strong, strongly held belief here. I'm I'm trying to puzzle out a question, which is the responsibilities of parents toward children. And I'm thinking about if, you know, we're experiencing this classically. I mean, I feel here in America, we've experienced this classically over the last 20, 30 years about sexual orientation. And I think that, you know, maybe 30 years ago, there was a sense among parents that, uh, you know, oh well, I hope my child is not gay. You know, if they are, I'll love them anyway or whatever. And that sort of evolved into a sense by a lot of people. I think an expectation that the feeling should be, my child might be gay. And if my child is gay, then, I, I, then of course they should be gay, you know, right? It's, a, it's a, another way of being a human. And I guess that, um, that I'm, I'm, I'm very happy about that, uh, uh, that evolution. And, and, and it makes me think about how we should think about a world that has a right to be a certain way and to, for example, say that we want to promote you know what we really believe that this community about is about is the service of God and not the individual and if somebody grows up and they love that and that works for them then then that's fine but But what about the children who grow up and say this isn't this isn't for me you know right i'm I don't feel part of this and i and I feel like a lot of them not not just in the ultra orthodox world i think we're I'm trying to get at a bigger question here about like I said, how we raise children. What does it look like to say, it may be that my child won't grow up to, be, to, be, to remain in this community, and, and that's okay. Is it possible that that, that community can, can evolve in that way? Or maybe it already is, because it feels almost like the, the alternative is that people have this tragic secret in their family, you know, that one of their children left as opposed to, yeah, one of my children left and she's an incredible actress and I'm very proud, you know, and, and, and everyone's like, oh yeah, you know, that's that's it, you know, and and, and we also embrace the people who come, you know, and, and, and become ultra-orthodox. So I guess I'm just wondering how that lands on you and whether you have thoughts in that dimension.
2: As I worked on my previous film, Division Ab, I actually spoke to a lot of ex-Hasidic people. And there's also a little bit of a misconception there. I mean, most of them are in touch with their families, it, you know, of course, when they go to visit or when they go to, a, like a family event, they have to, to dress accordingly and maybe do, you know, put on a little show. But, um, most people I've met are, are in touch with their families and, and it's, it's fine. Of course, they're not happy with the situation. Uh, but they do keep in touch. So I think that the tragedies are just the ones that we hear of because that, those are the ones that, that series are made out of, right? But um, that is not to say, I mean, I haven't conducted a research. I think for the most part, eventually the parents do accept it. What do you think, Jova?
3: The the scene that really broke my heart uh, in Unorthodox is when Esty is calling her grandmother from Berlin and the grandma just hangs up. And that's a classic scene, right, that TV loves. And unfortunately, I know it is part of reality for a lot of people. You know, I get this all the time. Are you in touch with your family? Because, you know, people really imagine something really dramatic. Of course, uh, most people would not want to be separated from their children. I think there is a bigger thing here because when I went to acting school when I was 20, I was approached by my family members and I was told that I am the reason why my cousins are not going to find a good shiduch, a good match. So you are being applied on the responsibility for the well-being of not only yourself and your close family, but the larger circles. And unfortunately, we know that now in the COVID situation, now it's no longer possible. But unfortunately, very traditional communities had families hide the fact that they have sick people at home because of all this shame uh, and larger responsibility aspect. So the system is very, very clever in incentivizing people to keep the rules because of their responsibility to others. But, um, But definitely life is different.
1: I noticed something happen in myself earlier, when Tova, you mentioned, um, you mentioned that you both immigrated from Israel. And that and you were talking about how like maybe, maybe there's something there, right, that, that each of you don't live there. And I I noticed in myself that like I had a momentary confusion because when immigration and Israel come up for me, I'm so used to Israel being the destination that people are immigrating to. And I'm used to the discourse being about. Immigration to there, and and I don't, and I and this like took me a second to be. Oh wait, yeah, they're talking about immigrating from Israel to the U.S. And then Michal, you talked about beautifully. um Wow, there are really some incredible American Jewish projects. The kind of like I get like it's striking to me, and I want to ask about that because both with the migration. I'm going to call both of these migrations. I'm big on migration language. With the migration to and from Israel, I think we tend to center the Israel part. So if somebody goes to Israel, ah, they went to Israel. They moved to Israel. If somebody moves from Israel to the United States, I often don't hear people say, ah, that person immigrated to the United States. They say they left Israel. Um, Yerida mm-hmm. being the, the Hebrew term that's, that's kind of, pejorative and negative that they sort of went down to someplace outside of Israel. And so I think we do a similar thing when we talk about people who transgress the boundaries of ultra-orthodoxy and not ultra-orthodoxy. I don't think I've ever heard somebody say, ah, that person became reform." In talking about someone Uh. who started ultra orthodoxy, I don't think I've ever heard that That person became renewal. That person, it's a true thing a lot of the time, or that person became secular. Like, it's always they left ultra orthodoxy. And in the inverse, I have friends who started out reform or secular or whatever who are now ultra orthodox. And it's never, ah, they left behind secular Judaism. They left reform. It's always they became orthodox. And I like, I don't know what to do with that, but I'm curious, like, to just. Put all this together, like when you did, whether it's discard ultra-orthodoxy or whether it's gain something new, like what What are some of the pieces that do feel like you sort of left them, left them behind and you maybe you miss them, maybe you don't? And what are the pieces that maybe we don't even notice because we're just sort of living non-orthodox, in quotes, lives, like in quotes, because I don't even think of what I do as non-orthodox. But like, what, what, what are we not noticing? What are we taking for granted about our lives that you sort of gained in sort of, I don't know, entering secular Judaism or entering reform or entering Masorti, whatever terminology we'd use?
2: It's funny. I have, I have a friend who celebrates her every year she's really happy about it and I think Tova can tell us maybe from her work that this word is not really used people use relocation um, and this is both to maybe it's not so PC anymore but also yeah I mean people are happy um, they're proud I think in, in the past you it's not something that you would be so proud of but now people are very proud of it. it's, it's an achievement <laughs> Almost to, I mean, not just leave Israel, but really, really to be successful somewhere else. That's not easy as an, as an immigrant. Um, to answer your question, I, I need to think about it. Tova, what, what do you think you, you find the uh, differences that are, that are meaningful to you?
3: You know, I'm struck by how we love hierarchies. And that 's in the religious world we just mentioned how the we tend to think about if you 're more halachic if you 're more observant that you 're upper in the in the ladder and i I actually changed my whole perspective when i was um, I taught theater Midrash at a rehabilitation center um, in Israel, and one of the uh, participants it asked me about my life and I said. Jokingly, I said, chazarti b'she'ela, that's a term that we use in Hebrew for leaving orthodoxy. And he said, no, chazart You, So he used the opposite term for someone who actually went back to orthodoxy. I literally started to cry because of someone whose life is about chazara They're in a rehabilitation center and they know about changes. And I started using that frame uh, from that on because I definitely feel that I, for me, upgraded my lifestyle, my life choices, being independent and being able to make independent choices. For me, it it is an upgrade. But um, going back to the migration aspect, the work that I am lucky to do in Palo Alto with both the Israeli and the English speaking community is very much about that. And uh, especially with the Israeli community, we have um, a few very, very uh, special projects that we, that we analyze that. And then you just visited one of the groups uh, that is called Gola, Tools of uh, Diaspora, um, where we use that, those terms freely. Uh, we are immigrants. And that is so hard for a lot of people, Israelis, who relocated, who temporarily live in America for 30 years. It's really (laughs) a change of a mindset. And that means that we are here to stay and to build our spiritual life and to be uh, sustainable, not only in the um, financial aspect, And that piece of, of American Judaism and the options that American Judaism gives for so many Israelis, uh, really takes me back for my first visit to America. When I was 19, I went to teach in an Orthodox high school in Los Angeles as a very religious girl. And I was shocked because the community that I worked with was Orthodox, but very, very, very different Orthodoxy than the one that I grew up in Benebrak And even having those shades of Orthodoxy changed my whole world. And understanding that those uh, nuances could be created and, and you could really pursue the right way for you to live Jewishly, this is something that uh, American Judaism gave me personally and I think for a lot of Israelis. And that is why I no longer think we have Aliyah and Yerida going up, going down, the relationship between the two communities is so 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 important for all of us to really create the new phase of judaism for all of us
0: that story is kind of why you know like i I struggle with it because right we know from the that there are many ultra-orthodox communities that try to keep out things like the internet and other kinds of information. like I actually remember having the experience that years ago, and it's still happening, that there's a group called Women of the Wall, which is trying to uh, make it possible for women to pray at the wall with a Torah scroll and all kinds of things that are not generally allowed there. And there were these, um, sometimes, there were these uh, ultra Orthodox communities that would send all these girls from the, from the young uh, girls' schools to come and basically occupy the women's section of the Western Wall so that it would prevent the. The uh, women who wanted to go with the Torah scroll prevent them from being able to come in, and they would yell at them and everything. And I, I would always say, like, I think this is a really stupid tactic on their part because what's going to happen is that a lot of these young girls are going to see these women coming in with the Torah scroll, and they'll be like, "That seems kind of cool," you know. And maybe it'll take many years until that that girl grows up and and But that, that even just exposing them to that opportunity to even know that such a thing exists is very dangerous. Now, I think that they're aware of that and that in, in that particular case, I think it was a tactical error on their part in my view. But the the approach of trying to keep out information is in theory very powerful except until it isn't, right? And 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 if there's something that happens where the information can't be kept out, and and I guess I'm wondering whether for various reasons. And uh, people like certain Israeli politicians have said that the growth of the ultra-Orthodox world is its own limiting factor, because as as it grows to a certain size, people are going to have to go out and get jobs, and that informational wall won't be able to be kept up anymore. And as soon as it, it comes in, the community is going to grow smaller again because people are going to leave the ones who find something that's of, of attraction to them out, out there. I guess I'm wondering how you think about the future of these communities in, in light of all that. Is it is Are we going to see something profoundly new emerge out of there where maybe it's a hybrid, maybe it's a, a form of ultra-Orthodoxy that's confident enough in itself that it doesn't have to be afraid of information, you know, that it doesn't have to be afraid of losing some people because maybe more people will want to come than are lost. You know, I mean, are there ways in which we could imagine that the ultra-Orthodox world adjusts to all this or is it more likely that they never will and all of a sudden that information will come flooding in and it it could cause sort of a catastrophic collapse, you know, because if all of a sudden everybody's... Uh, you know, in, in a time like this that we're experiencing now with the COVID, I mean, who knows, right? Everything is, seems up in the air and, and, and nobody knows what's going to happen. But I, I'm curious how you think some of these things are going to be dealt with as time goes on.
2: I think at least in Israel, yes, you already see the changes. There are groups or several groups, I think, of, of women who define themselves as, as uh, ultra-Orthodox feminists they're not afraid to use the f word um and it's 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 inevitable because you once you start it's a combination of the internet (laughs) coming to our lives and smartphones and also just the fact that someone has to uh, support the family and in this community funnily enough it's usually the woman and so you can't you know once you start having a job, you, you kind of think, oh, why wouldn't I just also have a career, you know, not just a job, not just to uh, earn money, but actually to develop, develop myself. I think it's, it's it's already happening. It's already here. Um, so, you know, lots of challenges in, in the horizon, but I think the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel is, is definitely changing and in a way, maybe getting similar to what's happening in, in the States for years, because in the States, no one, usually people do, men and women usually do have jobs, um, they don't just sit and study all day, they, they find their ways to also study, you know, one hour in, in the morning or in the evening. Um, so yeah, I think we're, we're already seeing that.
3: I think what's really uh, interesting in the series is that uh, we're actually getting a glimpse into the Brooklyn Hasidic community, and I loved it when in the beginning when a Yankee says, I go to Manhattan every morning, I come back in the evening, I have a nice dinner and a lovely wife. So that lifestyle is very different than the Haredi lifestyle in Israel and uh, specifically in the series, the women actually don't get education, and that's in specific communities. It's, it's not everywhere, and, um, and that is actually not the case in many, many communities that are really changing, and changing because of the leadership of the women. I remember our mom, I don't know if you know that, Michal, you were really young, but uh, our mom used to go to classes for women and mostly it's about <laughs> uh, not gossiping, noshon hara. Oh,
2: but, yeah. They had like hours. They had to sign up for I'm not going to gossip between two to four. And then a different woman would sign up for four to six. And that's how they would like. And then they, <laughs> they would, have, would like, gossip the, hours whole, hours of this.
3: <laughs> yeah, the whole other <laughs> 20 hours you can gossip freely. Wait, wait. My hour
2: is almost up. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I vaguely remember something like that That's so funny And you know, it's funny It's pretty amazing Because now our mom actually goes to Talmud class <laughs> um, So, you yeah. know, a little shift there
3: too Definitely Yes, and and absolutely So I remember growing up in a very, very, very traditionalized school a, a, Like a really strict Beit Yaakov Whenever we had a question that the teacher didn't know She would say Aniavareh, I will find out, and Aniavareh means I'll ask my husband who will open the book, and I I really remember when Mom used to come from those non gossip lessons, um, saying, you know, those women actually opened the Talmud, they actually looked at the book, and really fast forward now I think it's like thirty years later, her going to. Uh, Talmud classes and discovering Orthodox feminism and helping Agunot, women that are bound because of um, halachic circumstances. Now she's, you know, she's volunteering with them. And, and also looking at our different uh, past, Michalio and me, you know, in decades, the Haredi community is changing dramatically in Israel. Um, and and I think mirroring with the uh, non-Israeli Haredi communities, you can see where it's probably going with people really mixing in the real world because that's life and you can't really separate. And inter- interestingly enough, as you can expect, as you said, Michal, the Haredi communities uh, walking into the Chiloni or the general territory and demanding separation or kosher food and all that, that's a a beginner's conflict because eventually it is also changing Israeli life in Israeli society. And uh, of course, it's starting with a conflict, but eventually it is about uh, complexity and nuances and respecting other people's um, lifestyles. It will take us decades to get there as a society to really understand that you can Choose your own life and be respectful and respected in the public sphere. Uh, I think Michal, you experienced that, you know, in in acting school as a an observant Jew who had their own lifestyle and and I don't know. You tell me if you you felt respected, but I think we, in Israeli society, we have a long way to get there, but we will eventually.
1: So we're. Arcing towards the close, and just as we do, I'd I'd love to just close out with whatever whatever parting words you'd love our listeners to walk away with. And so I'm just curious with with Unorthodox, for you, Michal, as somebody who was in it, um, and Tova for you as a viewer, but not just a viewer, someone a, a viewer connected to the story of it and to a person in the cast, what should we be holding with us? What should we be considering about the the show Unorthodox and the issues that it brings up?
2: I think, uh, first of all, it just it's worth mentioning that it's based on Deborah Feldman's autobiography and her real life, uh, at least the Brooklyn part. Um, the Berlin part is is more uh, fictional. And um, as we talked about women's uh, opportunities, what I appreciate about the book is how she describes her relationship with her English teacher. So women who do work in Williamsburg, I guess, are, are teachers mostly, um, and so it's really, you talked about hierarchy, and it struck me, it's so interesting, because even, even within this community, it's like, if you become the English teacher, you're, you're less than the, the other teacher, um, but you still, you study English, and I think men uh, don't even have that, so women, it's funny, women are, in a way, they're more educated, but that's, That is considered less, in a way, um, because it's not a Jewish education. It's a a general education. I always hope that people
3: would acknowledge how rich our culture is, however you want to pursue it or experience it. I think I speak for both of us, Michal, that um, we're lucky to have been uh, raised with Rich content, even if it was uh, displayed in you know a strict way with a lot of rules, I think a, it gives me a lot of strength and a lot of love to our culture, and um, and I think Michal, you and me have kind of a mission here um, to bring these complexity and nuance and. Love and struggle aspect to this world. Um, I think we're lucky, and I'm grateful and um, and also, I'm super, super, super proud of you, and I can't <laughs> stop Thank talking you. about um, <laughs> you and your amazing work, so
1: yeah. That's awesome. We always love to close with some quelling when it's possible. So that's that's <laughs> fantastic. Thank you to both burn bombs. Thank you, Michal. Thank you, Tova, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you.
1: And thank you so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We hope um, that if you haven't watched Unorthodox yet, it's really an amazing series. You can check it out on Netflix. It's only four episodes. It's bingeable all in one sitting like Dan said or you can spread it out whatever floats your boat. So check it out. It's called Unorthodox. Um, We want to close out this episode in the same way that we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us and there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to to our website judaismunbound.com third uh, this is actually a cheat it's first second and third but you can go to our Jewish Live Facebook page Jewish Live all one word uh, there's also our Jewish Live website jewishlive.org and we've got our Twitter handle which is at JudaismUnbound. we've really just got all these different ways to be in touch with us and there are our email addresses dan at judaismunbound.com and lex at judaismunbound.com we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode we hope you'll tune in again in the future and with that this has been Judaism Unbound.